847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle. Mm, no, that's not quite right. Okay, there we are. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In today's exciting episode, I am continuing my multi-part deep dive into the music of science fiction cinema and its evolving soundscape through the decades, now arriving at the back half of the 1970s, specifically 1977 through 79. As usual, this overview consists of my observations on how music for this genre stands apart how it developed and cultivated its own distinctive sonic world over time, and if you've been listening consistently, you'll recall the immense variety of musical styles applied to science fiction movies. The traditional and the unexpected, the sonorous and the challenging, the pop, the jazz, and the orchestral. Collectively, as a movie-going audience in 1977, we didn't know we needed Star Wars until we heard and saw Star Wars. In a societal sense, the movie helped collectively lift our spirits following the demoralizing tragedies of Vietnam, Watergate, and an economic stall. Cinematically, it jump-started the genre of science fiction in a very unique way, as previous to this, the majority of science fiction movies were weighty message movies with warnings for humankind such as The Day the Earth Stood Still, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Planet of the Apes, and Soylent Green. But with Star Wars, science fiction became both swashbuckling and mythological. To add a personal slant to this, where we've arrived is where I began as a movie music fan with Star Wars, now known as Episode 4, A New Hope from 1977. Since starting this podcast, a few friends and family members have asked when I would devote an episode uh, exclusively to the music of Star Wars. I mean, even my career overview of composer John Williams largely excluded uh, music from Star Wars, my reasoning being that other podcasts have covered this topic at length and in greater, better details than, than I, so I wasn't sure that I could offer anything new or interesting to say. So, incorporating Star Wars into the larger framework of music for science fiction cinema is probably the closest I'll get to featuring these wonderful Williams masterworks on my podcast. In terms of music for the science fiction genre, the game really changed, uh, as when editing and previewing Star Wars, writer-director George Lucas had temp-tracked his movie with richly melodic concert classical tracks from Gustav Holst, from Dvorak, and William Walton. We can thank director Steven Spielberg for introducing George Lucas to John Williams, uh, the former who then insisted upon an original score that sounded as old-fashioned as the temp, to accompany visuals and special effects heretofore unseen by audiences, George Lucas intuited that a more familiar, approachable soundscape was necessary. 
This approach not only references 19th century classical techniques, such as utilizing the leitmotif approach of character-specific themes, but also ties back to the initial decades of film itself, with a sweeping swashbuckling style inherited from the musical founding fathers of Max Steiner and Eric Wolfgang Korngold. And seeing as how Star Wars is really more of a space fantasy or fairy tale, with wizards and swords and princesses and magic than science fiction, a traditional symphonic score really seemed more appropriate, since the long-ago period setting of most fantasy films lends itself to a traditional orchestral score, Star Wars seems fated to have been scored in the same manner. It reinvigorated the understanding that symphonic music is timeless music, and from a movie-going experience, Star Wars was the perfect escape from the bleak 1970s, as visually we were witnessing new worlds, and aurally we were transported back to a distant past, the combined effect of which allowed us to escape the present. When I was considering how best to sample a score known so well by everyone the world over, I decided that instead of playing the original 1977 film recordings, I would draw from one of the many re-recordings that followed in the wake of its immense popularity. These were new performances of the music for Star Wars, recordings made with different orchestras and different conductors than the London Symphony Orchestra with John Williams, as is heard in the movie itself. The myriad film cues, which had to fit the specific timings of their respective scenes, were thus liberated, dressed up, and embellished for the concert stage. For instance, there is a robust performance by the Los Angeles Philharmonic, uh, conducted by world-renowned Zubin Mehta, of a 30-minute suite of music from Star Wars, such as the main title and Princess Leia's theme, in addition to this piece here called The Battle, which essentially presents highlights from the climactic Death Star attack. So again, this is part of the suite of music recorded by the LA Philharmonic and conducted by the world-renowned Zubin Mehta from 1977's Star Wars, composed by John Williams.
That was a selection from John Williams' music for the original 1977 Star Wars, as conducted by Zubin Mehta and performed by the Los Angeles Philharmonic in a marvelous album recording made later that same year. Now, if you're a regular listener to the podcast and can recall the scores I sampled last episode, then it might help you understand how out of left field the score to Star Wars was back in 1977. I mean, we just heard the buzzing electronics of Logan's run the year prior. I've described how this was an orchestral tsunami which washed over the science fiction genre, as what occurred next was that every studio in Hollywood greenlit any and every science fiction property that could be gathering dust, alongside commissioning broadly romantic orchestral scores for most. It was sort of out with the new, in with the old, one might say. Of course, there were some expected criticisms that emerged uh, by some who decided that this nostalgic resurrection of film scoring styles was creatively bankrupt, but I think those assessments are really kind of reductive and simply contrarian. Star Wars was fated to carry this score and restore that lush symphonic sound to our cinematic galaxy. Star Wars was financed and distributed by the mighty, now late-lamented, 20th Century Fox Studios. During that same year, 1977, Fox had another big-budget science fiction epic in production, one which suffered perpetual problems throughout, was re-edited, and had its release delayed until October. This would be the post-apocalyptic with man-eating roaches movie Damnation Alley, directed by Jack Smite, starring George Pappard, buoyed by a riveting Jerry Goldsmith score. The movie was supposed to have been released in late 1976, but the special effects work was time-consuming and problematic. And even after all of that work, Damnation Alley seems quaint in comparison to Star Wars, both visually and in terms of story and character, as it falls more in line with the earlier cynical post-apocalyptic entries of the 70s like The Omega Man, Zardoz, and Soylent Green. What people wanted now was optimism. For composer Jerry Goldsmith, 1977 was a typically busy year, as he also scored Twilight's Last Gleaming, MacArthur, and Islands in the Stream. His music for Damnation Alley is a fun one, though, as it fuses orchestra and synths akin to what we heard in Logan's Run, all in a propulsive, single-minded focus, as its main theme receives endless permutations. Here's the cue Valley of Death from the film Damnation Alley, composed by Jerry Goldsmith, in which you will hear him working this six-note rhythmic theme through all the various sections of the orchestra.
That was music from Jerry Goldsmith's score for 1977 science fiction post-apocalyptic entry Damnation Alley, the unfortunately underwhelming B-side of science fiction movies released by 20th Century Fox that year. After Star Wars exploded onto the world of cinema, uh, sort of like a torpedo Death Star in May of 1977, Every other film dealt with the lasting effects, regardless of genre. In the world of science fiction, there were two adaptations of classic literary science fiction tales which were unsurprisingly overlooked by audiences because, hey, they weren't Star Wars. This was The Island of Dr. Moreau and The People That Time Forgot. Both can be considered throwbacks to the adaptations seen in previous decades, such as The Lost World, The Time Machine, and Mysterious Island, and probably seemed a bit passé to audiences in the late 1970s. The Island of Dr. Moreau, based on the H.G. Wells novel, uh, was directed by Don Taylor and stars Michael York of Logan's Run fame. Uh, it falls into the don't-f-with-mother-nature type of science fiction, as we see the terrible results of a scientist transforming animals into humans. The music was composed by Lawrence Rosenthal, a name possibly familiar to fans of his music for 1981's Clash of the Titans, uh, as well as episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Um, he also composed the music uh, for The Miracle Worker and Return of a Man Called Horse. Rosenthal studied composition and piano uh, in both New York and Paris, and in addition to copious film and TV scoring credits, he also arranged for various Broadway musicals. Rosenthal's lush orchestrations, alternating between romance and aggression, provide a grandeur to this adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Even without the presence of Star Wars, this score might have sounded old-fashioned, but perhaps was a clue to an inevitable shift in styles of movie music in the late 1970s. Here's the cue, Real Maria and End Credits, from Lawrence Rosenthal's score for the 1977 adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau.
That was music from The Island of Dr. Moreau, composed by Lawrence Rosenthal, released in July of 1977. The second literary science fiction adaptation released in the wake of Star Wars that I wanted to mention is a movie called The People That Time Forgot. This film was based on the 1918 novel by Edgar Rice Burroughs and was directed by Kevin Connor and starred Doug McClure and Sarah Douglas. It's actually a sequel to 1975's The Land That Time Forgot, uh, and it has a story following the rescue of Doug McClure's character who had been lost on an island populated by prehistoric dinosaurs. While The Land That Time Forgot had a score composed by Douglas Gamley, The People That Time Forgot features music by John Scott, a really wonderful English composer who is often unsung despite his music being a very high caliber and very melodic. Scott also scored the films North Dallas 40, Greystoke The Legend of Tarzan, King Kong Lives, and Yor The Hunter from the Future. So yes, on occasion, he's in the Jerry Goldsmith League of contributing marvelous music to disappointing science fiction and fantasy flicks. Here is the entitled cue from John Scott's score for the people that time forgot. That was music composed by John Scott for 1977's The People That Time Forgot. Here's a fun fact. You can also hear a sample of John Scott's music in the action classic Die Hard from 1988. Even with an original score composed by Michael Kamen uh, for Die Hard, there is a cue from John Scott's score for 1987's Man on Fire. 
heard in those final scenes of reunion in Die Hard. Before we depart 1977, there is one more title to feature, and it's another juggernaut for the genre, the film's director, and the composer. The extraterrestrial visitation and abduction classic Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released in November of 1977 and was a massive success by any measurement, proving that science fiction could have broad appeal and success even beyond Star Wars. Science fiction was now on the A-list. Close Encounters of the Third Kind also showcased a remarkably different side, or an unexpected side for most people, of John Williams' composing prowess and, along with Star Wars, garnered Academy Award Best Score nominations. Each of these scores elevate their respective films further than anticipated, and stimulated more public awareness of original music in films. Of course, thanks to it being performed on screen countless times as diegetic music, the element most well-known from Close Encounters is the five-note musical signpost of the visiting aliens. It's a uh, musical signpost which is sort of akin to a doorbell ring. You know, it's kind of amazing to think that in only a few short years, Jaws in 1975 and Star Wars and Close Encounters in 1977, John Williams had composed three pieces of film music that are now forever embedded in our collective consciousness. For Close Encounters of the Third Kind and director Steven Spielberg, uh, Williams drew upon more unnerving atonal orchestral techniques, uh, somewhat similar to what we've been hearing um, in science fiction films earlier in the decade. He then contrasted this element against more uh, tonal, rapturous string, brass, and choral passages as we eventually learn of the visiting alien's benign nature. For instance, in this cue called The Mothership, the music enters in this slightly unnerving manner with these keening string and brass gestures almost out of jaws before it eventually shifts to these heavenly flutes, strings, and choral passages. So here's the cue called The Mothership from John Williams' score for Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977.
So the musical corner in science fiction cinema had been turned in a bus driven by John Williams and the London Symphony Orchestra as passengers, if I keep persisting with this analogy. The repercussions became more prominent uh, by later the next year, even as Williams himself uh, was being hired to continue scoring the major genre blockbusters, such as The Fury, Superman, Jaws 2, and Dracula. The ripple effect of Star Wars permeated pop culture, and of course science fiction cinema specifically. From 1978, I'd like to spotlight two examples of outer space adventures that reflect this ripple effect. Star Crash, with music by John Barry, and Battlestar Galactica, music by Stu Phillips. Star Crash was financed by an American company, but shot in Rome, and directed by Luigi Cozzi, a protege of famed Italian horror movie director Dario Argento. According to the album liner notes uh, for Star Crash, written by Randall Larson, the producers envisioned it as a outer space set spy adventure, with lead protagonist Stella Starr, played by Caroline Monroe, as its female James Bond. They aptly sought out the talents of composer John Barry, who, of course, is the real originator of spy movie music, thanks to the James Bond series, and they apparently screened black and white images of the movie for Barry to convince him that it was a work in progress and not the actual low-budget ramshackle mess that it was. Star Crash was Barry's first foray into outright science fiction, uh, with two more science fiction projects coming up the next year. By the late 1970s, John Barry's overall style had shifted into the more beloved sumptuous orchestral palette, heard prominently in later scores for Somewhere in Time, Out of Africa, and Dances with Wolves. Star Crash features a very broad, long-lined main theme voiced on brass and strings that, like most every Barry melody, is instantly memorable. So here is that main theme composed by John Barry for Star Crash from 1978.
That was John Barry's main theme for 1978's Italian science fiction epic Star Crash, as inspired by Star Wars. I mentioned how this was Barry's first true science fiction picture to score. As previous, there had only been the 1976 big-budget remake of King Kong, which is more of a fantasy, and a few James Bond installments that had short sequences set in space, such as You Only Live Twice. But this is an example of one of the marvelous after-effects of John Williams' music for Star Wars, uh, which is a topic that I posted about on my blog way back in 2017. To be brief, what we find is that with there beginning to be such a deluge of imitative yet imaginative science fiction movies being produced, almost every composer working at the time, in and out of Hollywood, had their turn at bat to write music for at least one of them. And with large-scale orchestral scores back in vogue, that means that for the next decade or so, we'll hear such a diversity of approaches to this symphonic style, with contributions from unlikely sources like Ennio Morricone, Alex North, Wendy Carlos, Richard Band, and David Shire. But... Back to 1978, before I look too far ahead to the future. The second of the two outer space adventures that I'd like to present is a title on which I previously focused an episode in 2018. This would be the original Battlestar Galactica, a cult favorite TV series which ran for one season on ABC in 1978. The story occurs far off in deep space at an undisclosed time and follows the surviving remnants of humanity who now search for a mythical place called Earth. The pilot for Battlestar Galactica was conceived, written, and produced by Glenn Larson as a three-hour television event to precede the main season of episodes. And in 2018, what I covered earlier on my podcast was composer Stu Phillips' music for the series itself. Now, interestingly enough, this three-hour pilot entitled Saga of a Star World was recut and released theatrically first in Canada, before the show premiered in the U.S., and then later in May of 1979 around the United States. What I wanted to play here is from the soundtrack LP recorded at the time with the L.A. Philharmonic and released in conjunction with the TV and the theatrical debut. Composer Stu Phillips, who had been an A&R man for Cole Picks Records in the 1960s, was most often producer's uh, producer Glenn Larson's first choice on all his TV projects, from The Six Million Dollar Man, McLeod, uh, to The Hardy Boys, and later Knight Rider. Battlestar Galactica can be considered their most ambitious project, visually and sonically, evident in the vibrant, thematic score heard in the pilot, the movie version, and the series episodes. So here is some of Stu Phillips' music for the 1978 theatrical release of Battlestar Galactica.
That was music composed by Stu Phillips for Battlestar Galactica from 1978, as heard in both the theatrical edit and TV versions of the pilot. One anecdote about this score, according to Stu himself and the album liner notes, is that during the recording sessions at 20th Century Fox, John Williams made an unannounced visit. There had been rumors persisting that Battlestar Galactica was uh, quite the Star Wars copycat, right down to the music. But Williams learned that his fears were unfounded, and even asked that Phillips prepare a suite of Battlestar Galactica music to be performed at the Hollywood Bowl. Another slice of science fiction cinema, spliced with horror from the same year, eschews the Star Wars effect and instead takes its inspiration from the opposite end of the musical spectrum. This is the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, directed by Philip Kaufman, starring Donald Sutherland and Leonard Nimoy, with music composed by Danny Zeitlin. Similar to John Carpenter's 1982 remake of The Thing, the 1978 version of this story, about friends and family members being replaced by duplicates birthed from extraterrestrial pods, is widely considered uh, as almost superior to the original. It certainly heightens the horror aspect by the way of chilling modern makeup effects. The music by jazz pianist and professor Danny Zeitlin, his sole film score, is an avant-garde mix of orchestral, electronics, and unnerving sound effects. It, it falls more in line with some of those challenging, atonal science fiction film scores that we heard last episode from the early 1970s. Here's an example of some of Zeitlin's score for Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. That was some of Danny Zeitlin's music from the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, and in a nod to his jazz background, Zeitlin did also compose a laid-back, smoky, trumpet-led love theme for the movie. Uh, so it isn't entirely a uh, chilling work.
Last on my list from this penultimate year of the 1970s, I'm returning to the music of John Williams and his stellar achievement in scoring the Richard Donner-directed Superman the Movie. was released in late 1978, uh, starred Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, and Margot Kidder, and continues to remain the gold standard uh, by which all subsequent superhero movies are judged. And just in case anyone was still doubting that Jaws, Star Wars, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind were flukes, Williams presented the cinematic world with another masterwork, one that seamlessly combined lyricism, mystery, heraldic excitement, and a sensitive Americana. While initially I would have placed Superman more in the category of the fantasy genre, it does include the science fiction trappings of outer space, other worlds, spaceships, and alien visitation, even if the alien looks and sounds just like us. Plus, Superman's incredible powers are explained less as magic and more the result of simply differences in Earth's environment versus his home planet of Krypton. Williams' score for Superman is densely thematic, spearheaded by the titular, brassy main theme, along with an endearing love theme, an off-kilter villain theme, and numerous ancillary motifs. Uh, my favorite happens to be his Krypton fanfare, um, and the spooky flute motif for the green crystal that uh, accompanies Superman on his trip to Earth. Uh, but here is a portion of the extremely exciting Helicopter Rescue Cue from John Williams' score for 1978's Superman the Movie.
That was music from 1978's Superman the Movie, composed by John Williams, a score that cemented his role in almost single-handedly returning the traditional symphonic film score back to the big screen. I have a theory that if Star Wars hadn't existed, or maybe not in its final form, whatever that means, uh, that it might have been this John Williams project uh, that resurrected old-school scoring to public awareness. But who knows, everything works out as the force wills it right uh we've now reached the final year of this decade 1979 and the ripple effect generated by star wars has completely rocked the pool of modern studio filmmaking now we see a veritable plethora of outer space flicks crowding the cinema an effect which persists far into the 1980s and to boot most feature large-scale orchestral scores to match from top composers all across the industry as i noted earlier for example, even a stalwart composer of Hollywood's golden age, Miklos Rocha, having outlived all of his counterparts from that era, found himself in demand again. Specifically, Rocha was called upon uh, for his final contribution to the science fiction genre to be for the time travel thriller Time After Time. This film was written and directed by Nicholas Meyer, based on a story by Alexander and Steve Hayes. Time After Time uh, posits the theory that famed Victorian-era science fiction novelist H.G. Wells, who penned the novel The Time Machine, actually invented a time machine, which he then utilized to pursue serial killer Jack the Ripper to the present day. This film makes for a marvelous companion piece to the 1960 film adaption of The Time Machine, uh, from which I presented uh, Russell Garcia's music in my 1960s-focused episode, uh, and musically, the score for Time After Time sounds as if it originated from that same decade. Now, in the framework of my uh, podcast journey through music for science fiction cinema, we last heard from Miklos Rocha back in 1959 with his score for the post-apocalyptic The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. In the intervening 20 years between these two science fiction projects, uh, Rocha's richly sonorous scores were heard uh, in many uh, religious epics, such as King of Kings and Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the semi-science fiction thriller called The Power from 1968. Rocha's score for Time After Time is exactly what you would expect from him, unapologetically lush and romantic. And this isn't a criticism. Uh, it's, it's a wonderfully brilliant and engaging score, an anachronism in the modern time, just like H.G. Wells is in present-day San Francisco. 
Here is the cue Taking Off and Time Travel from Time After Time, composed by Nicholas Rocha. That was music composed by Miklos Rocha for 1979's Time After Time. Something that is kind of meta and wonderful about the music for this film is that you can draw a parallel between the fictional time-traveling character of H.G. Wells and Rocha the composer. In this movie, we have H.G. Wells transported through time from 1893 London to 1979 San Francisco. And the music never adjusts to the new time period. It remains as old-fashioned in style as Wells does in his quaint Victorian character. And in some ways, as Miklos Rocha began his film scoring career in uh, 1937 and was consistent in his sound and approach, we can almost see him also as a time traveler, brought forward from that golden age of 1930s Hollywood to provide music of that time for a modern motion picture. Pressing forward through 1979, the next example of science fiction cinema to spotlight is a mashup of a genre which dominated the early 1970s with the current outer space trend of the late 1970s. This is Meteor, directed by Ronald Neem, starring Sean Connery and Natalie Wood, with music by Lawrence Rosenthal. The movie follows the pattern set down in popular disaster flicks like Earthquake and The Towering Inferno, uh, in that we... Here, find an asteroid is on a collision course with Earth, and we need a big all-star cast uh, called in to solve the problem. And yes, you're right to think that the 1990s blockbusters Deep Impact and Armageddon center on the same dilemma. We heard music from Lawrence Rosenthal earlier in this episode from 1977's The Island of Dr. Moreau. For Meteor, Rosenthal provides a lovely melodic score 
with separate themes for both the U.S. and Soviet attempts to destroy the asteroid-slash-meteor. As an example, here is the cue Realigning Peter the Great and Realigning Hercules, which features both of those main themes that I mentioned. Uh, the Peter the Great and Hercules are the respective orbiting weapons satellites uh, for the Soviet and U.S. Uh, teams in the movie. So again, this is the cue Realigning Peter the Great and Realigning Hercules from Lawrence Rosenthal's score from Meteor from 1979.
That was music composed by Lawrence Rosenthal for the science fiction slash disaster movie Meteor from 1979. On this topic of mashups, this is what we begin seeing more of, is how many ways can a studio slice and dice a science fiction element into an existing popular genre? Which brings me to the next title, Alien. This is the first of two monumental scores by composer Jerry Goldsmith from 1979, the other being Star Trek The Motion Picture. Alien, starring Sigourney Weaver and Tom Skerritt, was only the second movie directed by Ridley Scott, who would later go on to direct other notable movies such as Blade Runner, Thelma and Louise, and Gladiator. Alien was basically a film birthed out of the twin hits of Jaws and Star Wars, taking the terror, gore, and unstoppable creature from the former and the science fiction outer space stage of the latter, and then placing these two genres into essentially a haunted house in space. The alien itself is a nightmarish, inhuman creation by Swiss surrealist H.R. Giger, and the film is shot in a rough, almost cinema verite type style. For the music, Jerry Goldsmith brought his best acoustic experimental game to Alien, incorporating unusual instruments such as conch shells, a didgeridoo, a medieval horn called a serpent, and even a whistler in one cue. These sounds express the unfamiliarity, the indifference of outer space, and the inhuman alien itself. In terms of orchestration, the score features cold, avant-garde, and atonal techniques more akin to a horror movie than a movie set in outer space. However, to offset all of this, and much to the chagrin of director Ridley Scott, Goldsmith attempted to bring some optimism and humanity to the proceedings of Alien by way of a very tonal, broadly romantic-styled main theme, which is heard here in his original main title for the movie, which is not heard now in the film because Ridley Scott actually had him rescore it. But here is an example of that broadly romantic main theme that Goldsmith initially opened up Alien with.
much of the uh, broadly romantic leanings of the score for Alien went unused, uh, as I mentioned. But thankfully enough, Jerry Goldsmith was able to liberally apply this same approach to his other high-profile science fiction title of that year, 1979, Star Trek The Motion Picture. This film, directed by Robert Wise of Day the Earth Stood Still and the Andromeda Strain fame, launched the Star Trek cinematic franchise for the original series crew, the original series from the 60s. Uh, The movie echoes 2001 A Space Odyssey in production design, special effects, and an overall cerebral tone. And musically, it's very much a bridge of transition for Goldsmith as he was moving away from his days of sonic experimentation and entering a more fuller, sweeping soundscape. Star Trek The Motion Picture is not considered a leitmotivic score in the same fashion as a Star Wars or a Superman with uh, a lot of character-based themes, but it still presents itself as a multi-thematic score uh, with distinct themes for the Starship Enterprise, a love theme for the characters of Decker and Hylia, another theme for Spock, uh, there is a motif for Starfleet, and different motifs and textures for the mysterious antagonist V'ger. Jerry Goldsmith's bracing, thrilling main theme receives wonderful treatments throughout, uh, as heard in this cue called Leaving Dry Dock. So again, this is a cue uh, from Jerry Goldsmith's score for Star Trek The Motion Picture from 1979.
That was the cue leaving Dry Dock from Jerry Goldsmith's Oscar-nominated score for Star Trek The Motion Picture from 1979. And of course, for any fans listening out there, I have to mention that at the behest of uh, executive producer Gene Roddenberry, this theme was ported over for use in the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation starting in 1987. The score for Star Trek The Motion Picture is often pointed to as... Uh, sort of the result of the Star Wars effect that was most prominent um, in those uh, years after Star Wars in 77, in that the studios did go to Jerry Goldsmith and say, hey, can you give us something like Star Wars, but not. And what's really fascinating about Goldsmith is that even in writing something that's a that is a large-scale traditional orchestral score, that he has modernist tendencies even within the music. So it isn't that he's even scoring it in the same manner as the way Williams uses an orchestra in Star Wars. Even though they're both large-scale orchestral scores, Goldsmith is still absolutely endemic to his own personal style um, and approach. For the next notable entry into science fiction cinema of the final year of the 1970s, we actually revisit a popular subgenre from earlier in the decade, as well as in the 1960s. The original Mad Max was an Australian production directed by George Miller and starring Mel Gibson, and navigates a dangerous and bleak future of a society in decay. It's somewhat in the same category as Rollerball, A Boy and His Dog, and Soylent Green from early, uh, earlier in the decade, sharing a similar downbeat tone. And this makes it a surprising entry in the post-Star Wars era of science fiction. Like a cockroach surviving and thriving after a nuclear holocaust, the post-apocalyptic side of science fiction continued to thrive into the 1980s, fueled by our collective fears of the threat of nuclear annihilation. Mel Gibson, of course, portrays Max Rokotansky, a somewhat good cop turned mad, who eventually becomes a reluctant hero in the sequels. The score for Mad Max was composed by fellow Australian Brian May, who is not the same Brian May as the Queen guitarist. Working with a small music budget, Brian May wrote an angry, propulsive score, primarily for strings, brass, and percussion with an additional cameo from a saxophone, and balances that with a lonely yet noble melody for Max heard on horns. Here is a suite of cues from Mad Max. These are the cues, the main title, we'll give them back their heroes, and Max decides on vengeance. So this is a suite of music from Brian May's score for Mad Max from 1979.
That was music from the 1979 science fiction dystopian action classic Mad Max. Music composed by Brian May. A suite of the Q's main title, We'll Give Them Back Their Heroes, and Max Decides on Vengeance. May returned for the first sequel, The Road Warrior, provided music for that, which I can circle back to in the next episode. And then this was followed up with Marie Char uh, providing really expansive, uh, incredible music for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome in 1985. The final title from 1979 that I'd like to share is a movie that certainly exhibits obvious influences from Star Wars, and yet had been circling development hell since earlier in the decade. The Black Hole was a live-action Walt Disney production directed by Gary Nelson, who also directed Freaky Friday in 1976, and starred Anthony Perkins, Maximilian Schell, and an awesomely threatening robot, weirdly also called Maximilian. The music was composed by John Barry on his third science fiction film of the decade, following Star Crash and the Roger Moore-led James Bond installment Moonraker. The Black Hole was initially imagined as a space-set disaster movie, in the mold of the popular blockbusters The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. However, it lingered long enough to then be reconfigured as a story of the crew of a deep space exploration spacecraft called the Palomino encountering a mad scientist existing on the edge of a massive black hole. John Barry was granted a 94-piece orchestra plus synths and the impressive instrument the blaster beam, and what he composed is hypnotic and indelible as only Barry can achieve. His twin main themes, a dark spinning waltz for the titular menace, and a brassy stalwart march for the Palomino crew, combat each other throughout the score. As typical for Barry when scoring to picture, he's really providing the color, the mood, and the atmosphere more than musically punctuating each action beat in a given scene. His cues still shift and respond harmonically and melodically to the edits and on-screen action, but in such an organic, graceful fashion that they can exist purely as music. To spotlight Barry's marvelous contribution to science fiction cinema of the 1970s, here is a short suite of his music from The Black Hole from 1979.
That was a suite of cues from John Barry's score for The Black Hole from 1979. Those cues included the main title, Durant is Dead, and Laser. And just like how the characters in that movie depart our galaxy by tumbling in, through, and beyond the black hole, we now leave behind the 1970s in our sonic journey through the music for science fiction cinema. However, unlike the characters in the black hole, I know exactly where we'll next end up, which is the 1980s. But here's a question to ponder, as we've heard the musical shift in scoring trends return to the traditional symphonic style of the golden age of Hollywood. What would we say are the benefits of the return of this style to film, and to science fiction cinema specifically? Music for science fiction in the previous decades had often been the place to be weird, but now the trend changed to one of more traditionally tonal. Is the benefit primarily more of an emotional connection to these science fiction movies? Does the symphonic score help tell the story better? Or better illuminate individual character arcs? It's just something to ponder. I want to thank everyone for listening today to this episode of the podcast. I surely hope that for each of you, this continues to be an enjoyable and enlightening exploration into the music of science fiction cinema through the decades. Next episode, we should be arriving in the 1980s, a decade which is chock-a-block with highlights. And we'll still be listening for what is unique and memorable for the genre and where the sonic lineage persists. Music heard in this episode were from the following films. Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Superman, all composed by John Williams. Damnation Alley, Alien, and Star Trek The Motion Picture, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. The Island of Dr. Moreau and Meteor, composed by Lawrence Rosenthal. The People That Time Forgot, composed by John Scott. Star Crash and the Black Hole, composed by John Barry. Battlestar Galactica, composed by Stu Phillips. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, by Danny Zeitlin. Time After Time, composed by Miklos Rocha. And Mad Max, composed by Brian May. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at scoretosettle.blogspot.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash scoretosettle. And on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's score, the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and review. It's always appreciated and helps. And you can get a shout out here. And yes, this is the Miko version of Star Wars that you're listening to right now. Thanks again to everyone for listening. 